Now this morning our focus is on the London Confession of Faith, Chapter 4 of Creation. And last time we looked at an overview of creation in Paragraph 1. And today we're going to focus on the apex of creation. The creation of man in Paragraphs 2 and 3. Paragraph 2 speaks about God's creation of man, and paragraph 3 speaks about God's covenant with man, what I've referred to as the representative prohibition. First of all, God's creation of man after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Then paragraph 3 speaks of God's covenant with man, the representative prohibition. Besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which, while they kept, they were happy, in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Now the source material for these paragraphs is found in the Westminster Confession. And the Westminster Confession has only one paragraph. But for some reason, our Baptist forefathers broke up that one paragraph into two. So I'm going to read to you the one paragraph from the Westminster Confession. Look at that one paragraph, and as I read it, you can compare it with the two paragraphs in our confession. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Besides this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which, whilst they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Now, it's also interesting that the Westminster Assembly presented scripture proof which, as I explained in previous classes, we didn't have the space to include the 1689 scripture proof in the hymnal version. And the Trinity Publication Committee simply didn't give us any more space. So listen to the scripture proof offered by the Westminster Assembly for this one paragraph that they had combined, broken up into two, by our 1689. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female. Here's the proof. 
Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, he created them. Then it says, with reasonable and immortal souls, proof. Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed man dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. And Ecclesiastes 12.7. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Luke 23:43 And Jesus said to him verily I say to you you shall be with me in paradise today and Matthew 10:28 Fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell Now that's a scripture proof that the Westminster Assembly provided to support that assertion that they made Endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. Here's the proof. Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, etc. Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new man which is renewed unto knowledge, in knowledge after the image of him who created him. In Ephesians 4.24 that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Then they say, having the law of God written in their hearts, and here's the proof, Romans 2.14, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law are the law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness with it, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And power to fulfill it. Ecclesiastes 7.29, This only have I found that God has made man upright, and yet under the possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. How do you know it was subject to change? Because it changed. Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat. And then they quote Ecclesiastes 7.29 again. God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. And then it also, that they received a command not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And there they simply quote from Genesis 2.17. And then finally, they quote again from Genesis 1.26 through 28 with regard to the final assertion that while they kept that command, they were happy in their communion with God. Happy meaning blessed in their communion with God. And God blessed them and said to them. And so the Westminster Confession provides proof. And as I was reading through this paragraph, expanded into two paragraphs in our Confession of Faith, 
struck me that the entire fabric of the biblical doctrine of man is summarized. And in this class this morning, we could take days, hours, weeks, or even an entire semester to present the biblical materials that are set forth here in these two paragraphs. Over the years, having the privilege of teaching the doctrine of man to students from the academy to the School of Theology to the Reformed Baptist Seminary, Pat had said over the years that for some of the students, no course that they took in systematics was more helpful to them than the doctrine of man. And the reason is because in the doctrine of man, you deal with the origin of man, and then you deal with the identity of man. You deal with the psychosomatic constitution of man. You deal with the procreative form of man. And for those that have been raised in a culture like ours, which, which has largely rejected the reality of creation and supplanted it and suppressed it and replaced it with the false doctrine of evolution, the idea that man is created by God, the idea that man has an identity and a value, the idea that man has a procreative form, male and female, these things have been just life-changing concepts to not a few of the young men that have studied and prepared for the ministry over the years. It's sad that our society has deteriorated to that. And yet that's been my experience from the men preparing for ministry. So you have, first of all, the superlative origin of man. After God had made all other creatures, he created man. It is supernatural. God created man. And it is ultimate. After God made all the other creatures, he created man. You also have the procreative form of man. In the image of God made he him male and female, he created them. The psychosomatic. Psycho comes from the Greek word psyche, P-S-Y or U-C-H-E, which we get psychology and other things. And soma comes from the Greek word soma, meaning body. So you have psychosoma, soul, body, psychosomatic constitution. He created man body and soul with reasonable immortal souls, rendering them fit to that life for which they were created. You have the sacred identity of man being made after the image of God the living, visible representation of the invisible God. And you have the original integrity of man, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. It was an inbred integrity. God made man upright. That doesn't mean he made him standing up on two legs. It means he made him upright with a sinless moral character. 
It was an inbred. And it was also mutable, subject to change. So you have the superlative origin, procreative form, psychosomatic constitution, sacred identity and original integrity of man. You have a whole course in the doctrine of man comprehended and summarized and condensed into one little paragraph. Follow this? Yes? All right. The superlative origin of man. Supernatural origin. And the Lord God formed the man, Genesis 2-7, dust from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became, in the Hebrew, nefesh kaya. Nefesh kaya. Nefesh meaning soul or life. Kaya meaning living, alive. A living creature. An animate being. Here's the point. Genesis 2-7 eliminates from the realm of possibility any attempt to marry what the Bible teaches with the doctrine of evolution. The doctrine of evolution at its heart states that the ancestors of Homo sapiens were animate. And that Homo sapiens was derived from animate beings. Genesis 2.7 says that this is not true. That man, at one and the same moment, became animate and human. He formed the man dust from the ground, and he became an animate living creature. Nefesh kaya. That's what that means. Means that the very same moment that he became living and animate, he became human. He wasn't first an animate ape and then somehow was changed into a human being. It was a piece of dust that God animated and made alive and human at the same moment. The origin of man is supernatural. God created man. He created man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. At the very same moment that he became alive, he became human. Evolution is false. Theistic evolution is false. God did not use a process of evolution to create man. At one and the same moment, he became alive and he became human. Genesis 2-7 removes from the realm of honest exegetical possibility. If Genesis 2-7 is true, then evolution and theistic evolution are false. It's really just as simple as that. And you say, well, are you the only person that ever said that? No, Professor Murray says that in his uh, collected writings. I forget the exact page, but it's somewhere in volume two where he talks about the origin of man. Professor Murray points that out very clearly. 
And it's obviously true, isn't it? Both of those things can't be true. It can't be true that God formed man supernaturally and that one and the same moment he became animate at human and evolution. Both of those things can't be true. They're mutually exclusive. One is true, one is false. So in spite of the fact that many Christians today are afraid of modern science and ashamed of the Bible and afraid to stand up and say, I believe the Bible and what the Bible says is true because you're laughed out of town, laughed out of school, laughed out of science class, drummed out of the industry, whatever. If you simply say, I believe that the Bible is true and that evolution is false. But you can't have both. You got you to make a choice. You got to have one or the other. Because the Bible clearly states that the origin of man is supernatural. And at one and the same moment, man became both animate and human. Any questions about that? Okay. Next thing, the procreative form of man. When society, male and female, I don't want to get into the reason why I was on the State of New York website being asked questions about my medical health. But let's just say earlier this year I had occasion to go on the website of the State of New York and was asked a whole bunch of questions about my identity and health. And I never saw anything like the, uh, the, 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 the categories that they had with regard to uh, my so-called gender. And it started with, quote, gender assigned at birth. And I thought, assigned? Assigned by whom? Who assigned to me at my birth the gender male? The creator. Male and female, he created them. When you reject creation, inherent in that rejection is the possibility, as it goes to seed, of rejecting the fundamental creation of man with a procreative form. Male and female is procreative form. Why is it procreative form? Because God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Who is fruitful? Who multiplies? Males and females. Males with females are fruitful and multiply. The Hebrew language is abundantly clear about the distinction between male and female and how that distinction is recognized. It's not arbitrarily assigned by someone. Doctor looks and says, mm, I think I'll mark this one female and this one male. No, that's not the way it works. It's not an arbitrary assignment. It is a divine creation. A divine creation that has a design. And that design is procreative. It's with a view to procreation that God created mankind, male and female. And the terminology and the usage throughout the entire Bible makes that abundantly clear. 
But when you reject the idea of creation, inherent in that rejection, so should it shock us if the doctrine of evolution leads to a society that rejects the divine creation of the male and the female with a procreative design. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Should it shock us if when society rejects creation, it lays the foundation to reject the biblical concept of gender? Should that shock you? Shouldn't, right? Because male and female, he created them. If there's no creation, if creation is false and evolution is true, then you can throw the biblical concept of gender right out the window with it. And that's what our society is right now delighting to do. And there's another thing you can throw out with it, and that's the psychosomatic constitution of man. He created man body, that's soma, the Greek word soma, and soul, that's suke, the Greek word suke, we get psychology, soul and body, with reasonable and immortal souls. And you saw how the Westminster Confession, in its support for this idea, our confession just simply listed Genesis 2-7, but the Westminster Confession goes a lot further in its biblical proof. It, it, it cites Ecclesiastes 12.7 to support the idea of immortality, that the spirit returns to God who gave it. And Luke 23.43, where Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Your body will be dead, but you will be with me. And again, they quote Matthew 10.28, don't fear them that can kill the body, Soma, but are not able to kill the soul, Suke. But rather fear him, God, who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In hell is the eternal destruction that lasts forever of the body and the soul, united forever in eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That's described, that's not saying who's able to annihilate body and soul but able to destroy them. And there's a difference between annihilation and destruction. So what's the difference? I hope you never find out. I don't know what eternal destruction feels like or looks like. And I hope I never find out, and I hope you never find out too. It's described as unending, everlasting punishment and torment of body and soul in what's called the lake of fire. And that's what God's able to do. So Jesus says, don't be afraid of the wicked. The wicked have limits to their power. They can never destroy your soul. The worst they can do to you is separate your soul and body and destroy your body and turn your body back to dust by inflicting on you physical death. That's it. That's the limit of their power. But that's not the limit of God's power. God is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, to consign a human being to everlasting punishment or destruction of the body and of the soul in torment forever and ever in the lake of fire. 
God's able to do that. So if you're going to be afraid of somebody, be afraid of him. But in this text, it underscores the psychosomatic constitution of man. That man is not just body, and man is not just soul, but man is body and soul combined. And that it is possible for the soul to continue to exist or subsist or live apart from the body after death. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Not his body, but he would be there because his soul would be there. You'll be with me in paradise today. Even though you die today, you will be with me. Your body is going to still be on the cross so they take it down and bury it or burn it or whatever they do with it. But your soul is going to be with me in paradise today. Body and soul. And the soul returns or the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now, if this were a doctrine of man class, I could go through all the different terms for body, soul, and the text. It's typical terms that are used for the non-material part of man that continues to subsist as a living consciousness even after death. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's the text that the Westminster uh, uh, cited. So anyway, I could go through text, body, heart, body for the body, or flesh, or outward man, or dust, indicating the physical composition of the body. Physical, visible, divisible, subject to dissolution, dissolvable, or dissoluble. The soul, indissoluble, indivisible, continues to subsist after physical death, either in heaven or in hell. Right? The biblical terminology, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sometimes the non-material part of man is referred to as the heart, sometimes the mind, sometimes the soul, sometimes the spirit. Sometimes the inner man, there's a whole bunch of terminology. It doesn't mean that the heart and the mind and the spirit and the soul and the inner man are all diff five different separate parts of man. They're just different names for the same non-material aspect of man viewed from different angles and vantage points featuring different of its capabilities or capacities. It has the basic capacities of willing, choosing, of feeling, responding, of thinking, thinks, it wills, chooses, decides, feels, moralizes. That's commonly called the conscience of man. Conscience is not different than the heart. It's not different than the soul. It's not different than the spirit. It's not different than the mind. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. If you go through the biblical terminology for the non-material part of man, you find it's manifold in the Bible. And yet it's describing that one non-material aspect of a human being from various angles and vantage points. Am I boring you yet? No, you doing okay? All right, so that's why the, the, the confession references body and soul. 
because that's one way to describe the complete human nature, psychosomatic. It's, there are different terms for the non-material part of man. So man is a remarkable creature. It has both a material and a non-material aspect united mysteriously, separated tragically in death, and reunited in resurrection. Both the righteous and the wicked will be resurrected, and soul and body will be reunited, both the just and the unjust. And then the righteous go away to eternal life in the new heavens and earth, and the unjust go away to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Body and soul reunited after the judgment day. That there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. So death, both for the righteous and the wicked, and the separation of body and soul, is not permanent. It's temporary. That human nature has both a material and a non-material aspect. And God designed them to be united. And sin and death separate them for a time. But in the end, they will be reunited and spend eternity together, even in new heavens and earth or the lake of fire. And that's man's psychosomatic, psychosomatic nature. And then the sacred identity of man. How crucial is this? Being made after the image of God. Very interesting that the Westminster Confession cites, let us make man in our image after our likeness, Genesis 1.26. They also cite the New Testament references in Colossians 3.10 and put on the new man, renewed in knowledge, and Ephesians 4.24, put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's from that text that the Westminster Confession got the language that they use. They got it from Ephesians 4.24. We copied that language but didn't cite the text. So let's cite the text. So in the original creation of man, man was an accurate, living, visible representation of God. Now, how do I open this up? In the image after the likeness, after the image, in the likeness. If you look at the, the, the switch of those Hebrew prepositions in the book of Genesis, you understand that there's only one way that those prepositions can be used interchangeably, and that's to convey the idea of identity. And throughout church history, people have looked for some quality in man which was God's image in man. Some said it's the human intellect. Some say, no, it's human relations. But it's not something about man. But it's man himself. Human beings, male and female, all of them, are the image of the invisible God. The idea of image is the idea of a visible representation. Likeness is the idea of analogy. So God is invisible. But God created man body and soul, to be a living, visible representation or picture of the invisible God. And the verbs in the New Testament, the prepositions in the Old Testament underscore this emphatically. It's 
not something about man, but man in his entirety. So every aspect of human life, God designed it for a purpose, a glorious purpose and value, unique. None of the other creatures with physical bodies are living, visible pictures of the invisible God. Not the angels, because they don't have physical, visible form. They're not visible pictures of the invisible God. Man alone, in the entirety of God's creation, created last for a glorious purpose and design, not by chance, not valueless, not purposeless, but with a purpose and a value and an identity that is absolutely, utterly glorious and unique in the entirety of creation. The image of God, the living, visible, in virtue of his body, representation or picture or analogy of the invisible God. That's who you are. That's your unique value as a human being. You weren't just brought into being from slime for no purpose or reason, but an abomination. You were made for a reason. You were made to be a living, visible picture, male and female, same value, same purpose, living, visible picture of the invisible God. That's your purpose. So that's why sin is always against God. Because man in sin went from being a living, visible representation of the invisible God to being a living, visible misrepresentation of the invisible God. So all sin is slander. All sin is misrepresenting God. You are a picture of God one way or the other. Either you're an accurate picture of God, an inaccurate picture. And that's the point of those texts in the New Testament that in redemption, God restores the accuracy of the picture. You were recreated after the image of God in righteousness and holiness. The misrepresentation is removed and the accuracy of the picture is restored. Not perfectly, but truly and genuinely in conversion and in the Christian life and completely in the world to come. In resurrection glory, we will once again be perfect, sinless, living, visible representations of the invisible God forever and ever. That's where we're headed. And already, the accuracy of that picture by conversion and sanctification in knowledge and true holiness has been restored. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That you have value? And you have purpose. And you have an identity. You're not worthless garbage. There's no such thing as a human being that's worthless garbage. There is no such thing. They may be wicked, but they're not worthless. They may be misrepresenting God grievously, but they're not garbage. They're not. They have value. Every human being has value. Even the ones that disagree with you politically have value. In fact, they have the exact same value that you do. Do you know that? Did you know that all human beings 
are created by God for the same reason, to give a living, visible picture of himself. Isn't that wonderful? That's who we are. And then the original integrity of man, having the law of God written in the heart. And again here, the Westminster Confession cites Romans 2. It says, for when the Gentiles, which you see, you see what I mean, by the way, I'm looking at the clock and saying, oh my, my, are you kidding me? It's 10, it's 10 after 10 already? I didn't even get to paragraph 3 yet. I don't want to draw it out that long. But you know, that stuff on the image of God, you realize how vital that is? That's absolutely crucial. In a world that's run by chance, tell people, you know, you have no value. Your life has no meaning. There is no meaning. If chance made you from slime, your life is valueless, purposeless, meaningless. That's, that's a lie. That's not true. You, you, you didn't come to, to pass by chance. It's false. Your life does have value and meaning. And also, original integrity. I've got to move on. Having the law of God written in their heart and power to fulfill it. And the Westminster Confession says when the Gentiles, which don't have the law, that is, don't, they never had the, the, the special revelation of the deck law given to them, do by nature things contained in the law, these not having the law, are the law to themselves. That is, they never have received direct revelation, and yet they do what the law does. How do they do what the law does? What does the law do? The law defines morally right and wrong. You shall not murder. Remember the Sabbath day. It defines right and wrong. The law obliges you to do right and forbids you to do wrong. Remember the Sabbath day, that's a command. Honor your father and mother, you're obliged to do it. You shall not murder, you're forbidden to do it. You shall not steal, you're forbidden to do it. The law defines right and wrong, and it obliges you to do right and forbids you to do wrong. And the law commends you when you do right. For Remember the Sabbath, no, no, no. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you. And you shall not take the Lord's name in vain because he will not hold you guiltless if you do. It condemns you when you do wrong. It commends you when you do right. This is exactly what the Gentiles do in their consciences. They define right and wrong. This is right. This is wrong. They oblige you to do right. You're supposed to do this. They condemn you to do wrong. You're not allowed to do that. They commend you when you do right. That was right what you did. They condemn you when they do wrong. This is what the function of human conscience. Even their conscience is defiled, however, because in the state of sin they call evil good and good evil. They define right and wrong, but not God's way. They commend doing right, and they condemn doing wrong, but not God's definition. But they do it. They do what the law does. And originally... That's what the human conscience did. Only it wasn't defiled. It defined right exactly the way God does. What is the Decalogue? It's the voice of conscience. Codified, clarified, purified, amplified. That's what it is. That's why they're connecting Genesis 
and Romans 2. That's why they're using that text. Because the Decalogue is the voice of conscience. And before the fall, that voice was sinless. And it defined right and wrong exactly the way God does. And it obliged you to do right and forbid you to do wrong. And it commended you when you did right and condemned you when you did wrong. Just exactly the way God does. They are the law for themselves. They show the work which the law does written in their heart. What does the law do? That's what it does. Defines right and wrong. Commands you to do right. Forbids you to do wrong. Commends you when you do right. Condemns you when you do wrong. That's what the Decalogue does. That's what conscience does. That's what conscience always did. Only before the fall it did it right. And then God spoke off of Mount Sinai what that original voice of conscience said. And he purified it. And he amplified it. Because people don't want to listen to what conscience says. They muffle it. They distort it. They twist it. They say, shut up, conscience. But God shouted what conscience says off of Mount Sinai. And so that's what you have. You have the origin of man, the procreative form of man, the psychosomatic constitution of man, the sacred identity of man, the original integrity of man. Now, much more briefly, God's covenant with man. I call it a covenant. It's a representative prohibition. And it says, basically, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.17, you shall not eat of it because in the day you eat from it, you're going to die. And then God comes back to them in 3.8 and says, did you eat from the tree? And he says he did eat from it and then he's condemned for doing it. Now, I call it a covenant because what is a covenant? A covenant is a promise and there's an implicit promise in this commandment. And it's a promise confirmed with an oath. The original form in the Hebrew is, to die, you will die. And that form, the infinitive, to die, you will die, the infinitive with the imperfect, to die, the infinitive, you will die, with the imperfect. That form describes, in other places, that is the form used to describe an oath, a solemn statement. So when he says, to die, you will die, the equivalent is to say, I swear with you with an oath that when you eat from that tree of knowledge, you will die. I swear it to you. So I refer to it as the Adamic covenant because there is a promise implicit in it. It's a prohibition. Don't eat because if you do eat, you're going to die. But there's a promise implicit in it. What's the promise implicit in it? If you don't eat, you won't die. As long as you refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not die. Of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. There's only one tree you couldn't eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was implicit. If you don't eat from it, you're not going to die. You're going to continue to live. You're going to continue to have spiritual and physical life. He had spiritual life. He had communion with God. He was right with God. God made man upright. He had fellowship with God. He didn't have to earn that. He received that freely. And the implicit promise is, if you don't sin against me and disobey me, you'll never lose that. You'll continue to have it. 
Now maybe sometime we get into all the speculations about that. Not this morning. Not in the last 10 minutes. Didn't you ask me something in the past about speculating about that? I think you did, yeah. Well, I guess I'm going to have to give you 10 minutes to speculate. So we have God's we have God's covenant with man and God's creation of man. That's where I'm going to finish for today.